0: Turn your Bibles to the Gospel according to John. I'll have our reading and we'll dismiss the kids. The Gospel according to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Number four, one Gospel, four accounts, right? One Gospel, his name is Jesus. Four different accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His Bible's in the back. We're in John chapter four. John chapter four. We are picking up our narrative in verse 15. John chapter four, verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not thir- be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right in saying this, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you are now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Amen? All right. Kids, you're dismissed. Children's ages from nursery through eighth grade. Make sure if you haven't checked in your children, check in, do so. Um, that would be great. We just want to keep record and keep watch over our children. We're in John 4. Let me move this. I don't have my iPad with me. We're in John 4. The old style way. Looking up. Okay. Our series has been entitled, The Invisible Made Visible. The transcendent, the creator, the eternal God has taken on flesh and has dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. We're going to see that truth again as we end this narrative this morning. But we are back at a conversation that took place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So much going on in this chapter. Just Just a beautiful and glorious narrative. Uh, if you have your Bible open, let me just, let me just give you a, a, a quick overview. In chapter 3, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's meeting with a religious insider, moral right guy named Nicodemus. He saw Jesus' miracles. He was drawn to Jesus. He comes to him at night, and Jesus tells his religious insider that he must be born again, born anew, have a spiritual new birth. If he wants to see or enter into the kingdom of God. This miraculous work, birth, new birth, is the, is the work of God. It is a gift of God. Nothing he can do to achieve it. No matter how many Bible studies he's done. He's a, he's a religious leader. How many Bible verses he's memorized. Sword drills he's learned. Jesus tells him what he has to do. Verse 14 and 15 of, verse, of chapter 3 Look to the Son of Man, Jesus, the one Daniel spoke about, who will be lifted up on a cross, and and when he's lifted up, he will receive this spiritual renewal, this, this spiritual awakening and this healing, just like Moses who lifted up the serpent. And all God's people looked to him, looked to the serpent, and were healed from their snake bites. And then after this encounter in Jerusalem, Jesus moves northwest out of Jerusalem into the countryside. And while he is there, he is baptizing. His disciples are baptizing. His ministry is growing. People are leaving John and going to Jesus. The Pharisees find out that this is going on. They're not happy about it. And, and Jesus finds out that they're not happy with him and his, and his ministry that is flourishing. And the Bible says that he left Judea on his way to Samaria. We learned in Matthew and in Mark in the same incident that Jesus also learned that his cousin or his relative, John the Baptist, was arrested Seized and put in prison. We see both accounts taking place. And Jesus leaves the countryside of Judea and heads toward Samaria. We looked at a map last week and we show that Jesus in Judea could have went three different ways to get to Samaria. He could have went west through Joppa up the coast into Samaria. He could have went east over the Jordan River, Transjordan they call it, Berea, and went up around Samaria. But instead... Chapter 4, verse 4, says that he had to pass through Samaria. We mentioned last week that he did not have to, but he had a divine appointment to. That the Father had an appointment for him to meet a woman at the well. And so he had a divine appointment. Jews did not normally go through Samaria. They went the long way around. Samaria was a half-breed, they called them, half-Jewish uh, half and half-other-culture races, They were the product of an Assyrian conquest that had deported the Jews and left some in Samaria and and, and they intermarried and they became a multi-race people and a lot of people saw them as half Jews and the Jews had a hatred for them, centuries-old hatred for them. I get into that last week. I'm not going to get into it here. So Jesus, on his way, right through Samaria, which is not the norm, breaks all the cultural norms, breaks all the cultural rules, breaks all the um, rules of Jewish virtue, and heads straight through Samaria. And he meets a woman. Not only is she a woman and a Samaritan, but she's alone. And Jesus begins his conversation in Samaria, the hated people with a woman. Jews did not speak to women alone, especially not a Samaritan woman. Verse six, he says to her, "Give me a drink." We said that Jesus started this conversation by dealing with the natural. Everyone's thirsty, even Jesus, fully God yet fully man, is thirsty. And he takes that conversation of what all people need and turns it around to a spiritual reality, what all sinful people need, Jesus without sin, and that is living water. And she says, you know, how could you ask me for this? And verse 10, he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Chapter four, verse 10. We said three things quickly about this water. It is permanent. She's talking about the work, excuse me, the water out of Jacob's well, the the real water coming from the well of Jacob. He's talking about living water. The water from Jacob, you will drink and drink and drink and drink and never be permanently satisfied. Verse 13, Jesus says, you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give them will never be thirsty, never, double negative, never, ever, ever be thirsty. He's talking about the relationship that he can have with her through the Spirit. We'll see that in chapter 7, that permanent relationship with her. He says it's abundant. Verse 14 again, the water I will give you will become in him a spring of of water welling up to eternal life, bubbling, leaping, ongoing, abundant water. It's also sufficient. It is able to forgive Nicodemus the dead Religious guy, he left in Jerusalem, and here this woman who's an outcast, an irreligious woman, is able to be sufficient for her as well, and we'll see that this morning. At this point in the conversation, the woman is still not getting it. Jesus is moving from the natural to the spiritual, but she's still not getting it. She's having a hard time understanding what Jesus is saying, but Jesus wants to take her deeper, and that's where we're at. We're going to take her deeper into this relationship. And this is our outline, if you you enjoy outlines. Jesus will sow the seed through conviction. He's bringing it to the place of receiving this living water. We'll see that God is seeking the thirsty through worship. We're going to look at worship a little bit. And also, he finally was showing the Savior through revelation. Jesus gets to the place exactly where she needs to be. It is a beautiful story of God bringing us to the place of worship. of of loving him and treasuring him above all things. So number one, sowing the seed through conviction, right? So verse 14, I have this water, it'll spring up, it's permanent, it's abundance. And she says in verse 15, sir, give me this water, this permanent, abundant, sufficient water you keep talking about, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Like Nicodemus, how can you be born again? Now I go back into my mother's womb. She's still on the natural. Jesus is trying to bring her to the spiritual. His desire is for her to see the truth. She still doesn't get it. And she says, look what she says. Uh let me let me get this water so I don't have to keep coming back to the well. I don't have to keep coming back to this to this hole in the ground, to the well in which day uh excuse me, Jacob has given us. I don't know. I'm tired of dragging this jug of water every day. You have this living water. Where is it? Save me a trip. That's what she's saying. Give me this water. I have to drag it here. And I love, I love it that Jesus does not give up on her. Some of us may think, you know what? She's not getting it. You know what? Let me move on. Jesus doesn't give up on her. He doesn't give up on you. He has not given up on you. Some of you may think and feel this morning, maybe even this morning. That if it was up to you, you would give up on yourself. You ever get like that? Like, uh, why would anyone keep putting up with me? If you've never felt that way, you just got saved this morning. (laughs) Right? Well, here's the good news. Here's the good news. It's not up to you. If it was up to you, maybe you would have gave up on yourself. It's not up to you. You don't make the rules. God does. And God says he won't give up on you. He's not going to give up on you. That's the good news. He wants to take you deeper. He wants to take her deeper. He wants to bring living water to her thirsty soul by revealing himself to her, but he has to get her there. And sometimes he just has to get us there. And how does he do it? Jesus keeps pointing to her need. First, he talks about her thirst, right? It's never satisfied. You have a thirst. It's living water. You're going to keep drinking. You're going to keep being thirsty. I have water will satisfy your thirst. And then he points to her next need. And, he, and he's plowing this heart with conviction. Verse 16. All right, you want to know how I get to living water? Go call your husband. Go call your husband and then you can come here. Hmm. Do you want it? Come. Now, we learned from last week, verses 6 and 7, that Samaritans, the Samaritan woman came out to a well, to the well in the middle of the day. No one ever did. Not only did she come out to the well in the middle of the day in the heat of the sun, but she also came alone. She didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be heard. Very peculiar. Women never did that. This passage here gives us the clear reason why. She was a moral and social outcast. Verse 17, the woman said, I have no husband. I have no husband. Jesus says, ah, okay, you're right. You're right. Verse 17, I have no husband. You're right. For you have had five husbands, verse 18, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said to me is true. He just met her. That's scary, isn't it? A little bit. God knows our secret sins. We see him coming. We see her coming. I'll give you a little bit of truth. I don't have a husband. There's some truth to that? And Jesus is like, really? No kidding. You've had five. Not six, seven, four, three, two, one, five. I know exactly five. Really, you have five. And by the way, the guy that you're with now, the boyfriend, staying over, huh, he's not your husband either. You know, as a pastor, I hear over and over, oh, but pastor, we love each other. We're, we're really married in our hearts. <laughs> Jesus right here, rejects the notion that merely living together constitutes a marriage. Right here. I read a story this week about a wealthy father. He took his son, he brought his son to the home. His son had moved out and he wanted to talk to his son about his moral obligation. He found out that he was living with a woman. And in an attempt to discuss his moral obligation, his son stopped him and said, my dad, 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 you guys all heard this before, mom, 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 eh, it's just a piece of paper. So the father said, okay, just a piece of paper, okay. Goes over to his file cabinet, his wealthy father, pulls out the file cabinet, takes out his will, and says, son, I have given you everything that I own, and he ripped it up. (laughs) Wait, what are you doing? That's just a piece of paper, son. It's just a piece of paper. The Bible views marriage as a formal legal public covenant between one man and one woman before God, Right? But praise God, he also shows us that through repentance, there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness for her. It's available for all sins, including sexual sins. Now, what we need to do is be honest and recognize our sin. Jesus turns this conversation on its head in order to reveal to her the real nature. Now, listen, the real nature of her self-confessed thirst. Jesus is not changing the subject. Oh, Jesus is changing the subject. Call your husband. Let's change it. No, that's not true. What he's saying is, let me get you and let me give you the living water because what you've been searching after in this man, what you've been searching after in these relationships will never fulfill your thirst. You won't find it there. He's not changing the subject. He's helping her to understand she's a thirsty woman, that we're thirsty people, that we seek and run after for satisfaction. I'm just amazed as Chris Caggiano has um, Put together the Advent readings. Like every week, you know, it speaks about the passage. We're thirsty. We need love and joy, and we're thirsty, and, and nothing will satisfy us. There, there's nothing like this woman. She's seeking something that will not satisfy her. And somebody may be here this morning and think, Ah, I'm I'm rather content actually right now. Okay, I'll give you that. It won't last. It won't last. It's only for a moment. The contentment is only for a moment; it can vanish in a split of, you know, in a moment's eye, in a, in a moment's twist. Loss of a job, financial crash, the death of a loved one, broken relationships, thousands of opportunities, thousands of ways that our earthly satisfaction can be taken from us. Only Jesus has this living water. Only Jesus can ultimately satisfy the thirst that every human soul is seeking. Do you see what Jesus is doing? You see what he's trying to do? He's revealing to her that the longing of her heart will never be satisfied outside a relationship with God. Love, forgiveness, her need for security and satisfaction cannot be met. There there cannot be a, a, a... a time in which you're not thirsty anymore, in a broken, sinful relationship. And he's trying to say that to her. And let me say this as we leave this piece of uh, narrative. When God comes after you, and he does, and when God reveals to you, and he does, in many different ways, your sin, your brokenness, your dirty secrets, when he pursues and reveals it, he does so because he loves you. He loves me. His affection upon us reveals our dark secrets. secrets. Whether it's on the internet at night, whether it's wrong and broken relationship, whether it's drug abuse, alcohol abuse, whatever it is, he chases after us, we hide and he exposes because he loves you. He's not a big bearded old man without his meds beating you. He loves you. He's a father who wants to expose what's killing you and what's killing me. You see, in order to receive this living water, Jesus is telling her, she got to deal with the disastrous nature of her sinful life. Lovingly pushing her to that place, revealing the secrets of her heart, that quiet place that no one knows to forsake her sin. See, there's no living water without conviction and repentance. John Piper writes this. This is not water you drink with your mouth. It's water you drink with your heart. He was dealing with her deep inner life and need, and she wouldn't let him. It may be that she couldn't go there. Maybe it was locked and sealed, So he, Jesus, puts a prophetic key in the door. Go call your husband. And look what happened. Look at verse 19. She says, oh, I see. I I see, stranger. I perceive you are a prophet. Those words mean two things. One is he knows stuff that no one knows. He knows things that he should not know. He knows Way too much, like in the family, remember, yeah, I saw you. Yeah, really, you saw me? The omnipresence, the, the, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he also, that remark also is like, oh, you got me. Yeah, it's true. Can't argue with that. You must be a prophet. Because if it wasn't true, you would say, whoa, 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 not five. It was four. Him, 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 him four. No, he's like, oh, no, oh, no. You, you got that right. You must be a prophet. And you know, even though he reveals that truth to her. Family, I want you to see this morning, he's like, I still want you. I still want you. Seeking the thirsty through worship. Our father, she says, worshipped. You must be a prophet, but our father's worshipped on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Like, where did that, okay. Some people think she's just changing the topic. Like, oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Hey, you know what? Let, let's talk theology. Let's change subject. Let's go in a different direction because it's getting too hot in here. Like, you're going to start pointing out all kinds of things that I'm doing. I don't want that to happen. I don't think that is what's going on. I don't think it's that simple. Right? Several things she could have changed. She could have said, hey, how about, you know, how about the Giants this year, you know? Well, Dallas. Come on, how where are we going to go, right? She could have had a lot of things to say between them, but she didn't. She says, oh, you're a prophet. You know my sinful life. Let's talk about worship. I think there's a connection. I don't think it's just changing the subject. I think there's a connection that she chose worship. Listen to what John Calvin writes in his commentary. It is a mistake opinion, which some hold, and they do, that the woman finding the reproof to be disagreeable. In other words, found out my sin and hateful, he says. I don't want to talk about it. So she cunningly changes the subject. On the contrary, he writes, she passes from what is particular to what is general, and having been informed of her sin, she wishes to generally instruct concerning the pure worship of God. You know what he's saying? I agree. In other words, by bringing up this controversial subject of worship, after Jesus exposes her sin, and, and, and now she has this... this idea, a thought, you know what, you must be a prophet. And then she brings up worship. I think that she, she's coming to realize that there's something needs to be done about that sin. Worship. How do you approach God? You just called me out on my sin. Well, then if that's the case, let's talk about worship. Let's talk about worship. How do I approach God? I would not be surprised at her statement had to do with the proper worship regards to the sacrifices of sin. Although she is a Samaritan, they still had their sacrificial system. They just did it in a different place. Right? And that's what the deal is about location. Look what she says. But, you know, you Jews, you worship here. We, the Samaritans, worship here. What she was referring to is Deuteronomy 12. To seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes. Get the place where all your tribe, where he will put his name there and he will inhabit there. His Shekinah glory will come. Now you have to understand that the Samaritans had only part of the Bible. They only believed in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, five books. That's all they had. Everything after that, all the history and everything else, they didn't believe in. They didn't didn't rely upon. It wasn't canon to them, which is rule or standard or authority. They just had the five books. So in the five books, it says there's going to be a place. Well, if you go into the five books of Moses, you'll find that that place at that time where Abraham worshiped and built altars, where, where God's people shouted and cheered the blessings because the law was given is in Shechem and Mount Gerizim. So that was their place of worship. They didn't have the rest of the book. David wasn't born yet. They don't have that David was going to build a temple, that David was going to be in Jerusalem, and Solomon will build a place. Oh, that says that when, when, when the temple comes, my Shekinah glory will fill this place. I will meet you here. They don't have any of that. And Jesus recognizes the difference. Look at verse 21. Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Gerizim, their place of worship, or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Notice where he says, neither on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship, what? The Father. Hmm. Didn't say God. Yahweh. You worship the Father. Why would he do that? She already had said to him twice, oh, this well was our father jacob are you better than him he actually drank from this well you just got here are you better than our father jacob look at verse 20 our fathers worshiped on the mountain and jesus like listen if you want to keep going back in history you can go right ahead i'm not talking to you about your forefathers that's religion that's ritual i'm talking about the father the living god with living water Right? So he doesn't deny the locality in worship is in Jerusalem, where God will reveal his glory, but he wants to give her a short kind of history lesson. Okay, he says, oh, yeah, 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 uh, uh, you're right, there's two mountains, but look at verse 22, you worship what you do not know, you don't have the rest of the story, you got five books, there's a lot more. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The Jews stand in the stream of God's salvific or, or salvation history. They know the one true God through the scriptures, through the, through the testimony of the Old Testament. So, and they rejected that. And Jesus affirms that the Jewish people are the instruments by which God's redemptive purposes, plans, fulfillment is, is mediated to others. And then he turns the conversation, not from where, but look what he does in verse 23. He turns it to who? Now, now, follow me on this. The hour is coming. All right, I get the different places. We understand we got the full canon. We got the full authoritative scripture. I get that. All right, let's put that aside for a second, but let me remind you the hour is coming and is now here. That's because he's there. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him underline the word true worshipers. Notice he says true worshipers, not true worship. There's a difference. Not true worshipers, he writes true worship, not true worship. What is significance of that is that this is not, true worship begins with the true God. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. True worship begins with the true God. Okay? It, this is not the proof text that a lot of people use for their bringing hymns back or music back and bands and all that stuff. They gotta be, you know, it's gotta be this, it's gotta be that. He's looking for true worshipers. B- before we talk about the right and wrong way of worshiping God, one must understand who God is. Jesus is showing her who the Lord is, the, God's heart, uh, uh, who he know, you know, he knows her, he wants to give her living water, and God is working this redemptive work through the Jewish people. God says you got to know him. Family, that's so significant today. There are still I hate to say it, even some churches are forgetting that not all roads lead to the same true God. Jesus is making it very clear, in truth and in spirit, God is spirit. You must worship him and him alone. And that's so significant, significant. DA Carson great New Testament scholar, nails it with this quote. He says, should we not remind ourselves that worship is a transitive verb, which means uh, requiring or direct object. That's what worship is. He says, we do not meet to worship or to experience worship. We aim to worship God. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only, the Scripture says. He says, this is the heart of the matter. In this area, one must not confuse What is central with the byproduct, okay? Follow me here. Don't confuse what is central with the byproduct. He says, if you seek peace, you will not find it. If you seek Christ, you'll find it. If you seek joy, you will not find it. If you seek Christ, seek Christ, you will find it. If you seek holiness, you will not find it. If you seek Christ, Seek Christ, you will find holiness. If you seek experiences of worship, you will not find them. If you worship the living God, you will experience something of what is reflected in the Psalms. Worship is a transitive verb, and the most important thing about it is its direct object. Do you see what he's saying? True worship is worship the true God. True worship is not about the place where you go. Verse 24. God is spirit. Those who worship him must do so in spirit and truth. Right? God is spirit. What does that mean? It's nature. Right? He, he, it's what he's like. He's not contained. He doesn't need a temple. Yes, he, he chose to dwell in Jerusalem, but he's not like the other false gods that can't go from territory to territory. All the earth reveals his glory. He's not reducible. You can't just fit him into a temple and a location. So be a true worship of God. He's saying you have to be God-centered. You have to be centered on him. It's not about the temple. It's about spirit and in truth. You must worship him. I've said this before. I'm gonna say it again. The question is for you and I, who we worship, not if we worship. It's who we worship, not if we worship. What God, what Jesus and God is revealing to us is that he is spirit. And all that God is, He is, and he has shared some of that with us in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. In the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, there is glory, there is worship, there is adornment, there is love poured out on one another. He created us not just simply to worship him, he created us as worshipers. So the question is not, and will never be, do you worship? The question is always what you worship. What you worship. we are tirelessly and consistently and persistently pouring our hearts out on something, My, our, our minds either on money or our devotion in some direction. It's when and when that direction is not God, Him, our ultimate treasure is called idolatry. Even if it's a good thing, like working hard, like our children like our spouse, like family, when anything takes the place of our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate worship, what we value and and, and treasure most, it's called idolatry. Jesus is trying to tell this woman about true worship, about living water, about finally getting her thirst fulfilled. Look at verse 24. Again, God is spirit. Therefore, that's who he is. we, we, We come to him in truth, who he is. We worship him the way he is. And we need to worship him then in spirit and in truth. All right? He's not containable, but we must worship him in spirit and truth. Not geographic. It's not a conformity, religious standards. He says worship is about him. Right? It's good to have structure. We have it here. Instead of being in a mountain or in Jerusalem, he's saying we have to worship him for who he is in spirit and in truth. Let me just break that down real quickly to you. What does it mean, spirit and truth? This is what it means. To worship in spirit means that it's not only God-centered, but it's carried along and fueled and inflamed through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's an argument in in commentaries whether he's talking about the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. I've always felt both. Jesus just told Nicodemus, you must be born of the flesh and born of the spirit. Born of the Spirit is what gives us life. It's the life of God in us. And we have His life in us, so He reveals to us who He is through His Spirit. We need new life. We must worship Him in Spirit, His Spirit dwelling within us. And when His Spirit is dwelling within us, our Spirit, the Bible says, is awakened. It was once dead. It is now alive. And now we must worship Him in the inner man through the power of the Holy Spirit. When our Spirit is alive, we worship Him. That's who He is. And at that point, we are guided by his truth. Truth is, is uh, I, the word truth here means true views, true perspectives, true analysis of who God is. So truth is who God is. We're empowered by truth. And where do we find God's truth? His word is truth. Right? We're going we're to see that in John. His word is truth. So true worship is a response to God of seeing him, who he is, truth about him, truth claims in scripture, being moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit along with our inner unction, spirit, to worship him for who he is. It's, It's not first and foremost the band. I love the band. Ricky does a great job. All of you do a great job. It's not first and foremost what kind of instruments. So many times you think of worship, what do you think of? Music. That's down the road, man. This is not what he's talking about. Jesus is not trying to say, hey, you know, I heard the music you guys were playing in the Samaritan church the other day, and I really didn't think it, it was all that great. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God worshipers, true worshipers, worship God in spirit through the empowering that he gives us with our will and our hearts and through truth. It has to be done through Truth. William Temple, maybe some of you have heard this testimony, uh, excuse me, um, quote, listen to this quote. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God, everything we are to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love. The surrendering of will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration. The most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. Awesome. Awesome. Do you know what's really so great? As I was studying this today, this week, I was thinking, you know what what is so awesome about God-centered, God-exalting, God-empowering, God-revealing worship? You know what's so awesome about it? (laughs) Look at the text. God is looking for worshipers. God is pursuing you. It's not that you decided, let me go on this journey. Uh Uh-uh. It says he is pursuing worshipers. It's not your search. It's not your journey. God is not lost. God is not saying, woe is me, right? So when he says, my heart, I am seeking and pursuing true worshipers, In no way does that imply some deficiency, right, or some deficit in God. God's not waiting up there like on Thursday going, man, I can't wait to Sunday, man. That one church, they are on fire down there. They are I can't wait for them to worship me. I'm really not feeling really great about myself this week. So when they gather together and they give me praise, I, I feel so much better. They do such a good job. That preacher, that band, awesome. It's not about our rightness there is no deficiency god's not dependent on our worship god's not up in heaven just waiting for that day so he could feel better right you there know, is there is a sense which the scriptures teach about coming to worship properly first Corinthians 11 says don't come to the lord's table unworthily it's an adverb meaning manner don't come unrepentive, kind of hard hearted. Get your heart right before you come to the Lord's table. I get that, but that's not what this text is saying. Here in our text, that God doesn't have it's not that God has bad moods and deep longings and needs to be worshipped. God's not diminished. God is full in himself. He is totally satisfied, sufficient in himself, complete, full, and final. He doesn't need us. Within the Trinity, there is all the glory and worship. He didn't create the world because he was lonely. I need you worship. There's not this independent, interdependent kind of relationship. It's paganism. You scratch my back, oh Lord, we'll worship you. I hope you like our stuff. Oh man, he's going to bless me now. He just really dig my singing, man. I'm such a great singer. Oh man, that's paganism. That's paganism. That's prosperity gospel. Let me just say the prayer just right, and God will always do this for me. No, that's paganism. That's not the way we worship our God. God is just fine. (laughs) You're lost, not him. But God finds us, pursues us, even in his fullness and in his love, he seeks us and comes after us. And I love that. It's not because of his needs, it's because of all that he is as God. In his fullness, he seeks after you. In his fullness, he seeks after me. He is sovereign, he is good, he is gracious, he is loving, he is kind. He's pursuing you to love him, to worship him so that he can fill you, so that he can take care of that longings of your soul. It's about your need, not his. He's the bridegroom, we are the bride. God is about collecting his children from the four corners of the world so that he can be their father and satisfy their thirsty souls. Showing the Savior. Yep. Sowing the seed through conviction. Seeking uh, the, the thirsty through worship. Now showing the Savior through revelation. Verse 25, two more verses. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is the Christ. When he comes, he will tell me all things. Now, this, this conversation seems to, hey, David, can you just keep the doors open for me? Get some air? Thanks, brother. At first, once again, I'm reading this. I'm like, she. What is she saying? Worship, worship, all of a sudden, oh, when the Messiah comes, where'd that come from? You know, she runs into this Jewish guy. He wants a drink. He doesn't have nothing to drink from. He offers her living water. He calls her a sinner, right? He says, go get your husband. Then he's talking about worship. Like, where where are we going with this conversation? All of a sudden, bam, when the Messiah comes. Well, really? We didn't talk about the Messiah. But now you're talking about the Messiah. Well, notice what, notice, if you have your Bibles open, notice what Jesus does. Look at verse 9. It says she called him a Jew. Oh, you Jews. That's his first, first thing she meets this guy. And she says, oh, you're a Jew. Why are you asking me something to drink? Now, you could take that like from a friendly style and go, oh, you're a Jew. But I'm from New York City, so I don't take it that way. I'm like, you're a Jew. What you? No, I got, the, I got the attitude. You're a Jew. What do you want something to drink for me for? That's the way I look at it, Right. You're a Jew, he calls her a Jew. Look at verse 11. He addresses him as sir. Actually, the Greek word is kairos, where we get the word Lord. But in the context, it's just more respectful. You go from a derogatory Jew to a more respectful sir. Verse 19, you're a prophet. So a Jew, sir, prophet. Her eyes are starting to open, right? Now, when she calls him the Messiah in the Samaritan ...culture and in their religious beliefs... ...they didn't use the Messiah that much... ...they used the word Tahib... ...I looked it up... ...it's called the Restorer... ...comes from Deuteronomy... ...which is their books... first five books... ...Deuteronomy 18... ...when Moses promised that a prophet will rise up... ...and will speak of God... ...and will reveal God to them... ...a special prophet... New Testament tells us it's Jesus. So they're waiting for this Rahib, this, this Tahib to come and to reveal all things to them. And that's why she says that. If you notice in that verse, she says, the Messiah is going to come. When he comes, he will, he will tell us all things. We're waiting on this Messiah. We're waiting on this Tahib. But notice that she's making the connection. This is a bright woman. This is a bright woman who knew the Samaritan doctrine, who knew the Jewish doctrine, and she makes this connection between living water, worshiping the true God, um, what is she going to do with her sin, and now she says, the Messiah's going to come, he's going to clear all this up for me. He's going he's gonna to make it all right. Everything's going to be okay. Now, l- let, me, let me share one last thing with you. On the very last verse 2026, 20, Jesus said to her. One of the major lessons I hope we walk away from this text, as before we look at this last verse, is that God is teaching us and showing her and us that you can't just approach him any way you want. You can't approach him any way you want. He has fully and finally revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ the Messiah. I am the place of true worship. That, that's what he's saying. I am the one who, who will reveal to you the truth of who I am. You notice what he says? Look what he says, verse 26. Now, let me read it to you. You have your text in front of you. I'm going to read it to you in, the, in literal translation. The word he's not in it. He literally says to them, I am. Does that sound familiar? I am the one speaking to you. We, we, we know I am because we know that Jesus, I am the door. I am the sheep. I am the shepherd. I lay down my life. He says, before Abraham was, I am. John 1 1, in the beginning was, I am the word. It's the eternal existence. And Jesus says to a ego, am I? I am always existent. Conversation over. <laughs> the one that you've been looking to, The one who will come will straighten all things out. The one who will show you true worship. The one who will help you deal with your sin. The one who will satisfy your soul. I am. That's what the text is saying. Within minutes, who knows how long this conversation went, but it wasn't long, he reveals to her as the living water. She makes the connection. He says, I am him, I am the one, and I am the place where true worship will come to worship the living God. From now on, it's not the temple, it's me. Jesus did not, catch this, Jesus is not saying to you and to me and to the Samaritan woman that worship now, well, no, let me say it again, that worship once had a geographic place and now it does not have a geographic place. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, at one time you met here and the Shekinah glory came down, the presence of God face to face, you did your worship. Now that I'm here, you can worship anywhere. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that geographic, all that is true, but you can't go anywhere, you have to come through me. That's what he's saying. That the geographic place, the sacrifices, all that you said you've longed for and thirsted for, is not just found anywhere, it's found only in me. No man comes to the Father but by the Son. Geographically, yes, it's obsolete, but the very essence and the basis of worship is now through Jesus Christ. So, family, if you want to know this living God that she was revealed to, that's me saying this word. You want to know him, you have to come through me. John is connecting this passage to John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says, Destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. You see that? He's talking about his body. The curtain temples torn in two, access to the living God, being worshipers of God, being true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, can only take place through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. He's it. That's all we got. And like this woman, we've all sinned. And like this woman, we all need atonement and pardon. And Jesus saying, through him, we can know the Father. I will lay down my life, and I will pick it up again. And the ultimate sacrifice, all that the priest has done up to this point, temples and sacrifices are not necessary because I am the true sacrifice. All worshipers of truth, all worshipers, true worshipers come through the Father if you have not through the sun, excuse me, if you have not come through the sun, if you're trying to worship and you are trying to gather your things and, and 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 fulfill the longing of thirst, and it's not through the sun, you are not worshiping the one true God who loves you and gave his son for you. Worship no longer needs a building, yes, but Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. So let me end this way. Jesus said to her. If you had asked me, I would have given you living water. So let me ask you, have you asked him? He said, Ask me, if you had asked me, if you had known, now you know. Now I know. Have you asked him for that living water? Do you recognize that your thirst and your longing is heading you in different directions, in broken relationships, in distance and sinful ways? Come to Christ, come to Jesus. And drink from Him. Come. He is seeking you to worship Him in spirit and truth. He is inviting you to receive His Spirit, which, which seals us and applies Christ's work of salvation and cleanses us from sin and gives us life. He's the only one, family. Come to Him. Father, what, what a what a beautiful, glorious truth and narrative you have given to us this is your word this is your truth father thank you for it father we are thirsty people we are thirsty people we are always and constantly running after things that never satisfy our thirst we're kidding ourselves but father we pray that your spirit would bring conviction of sin that we have drank from wells that are dirty. Father, you will bring us to the place of recognize that Jesus is our sacrifice. And upon his resurrection from the dead, we know for sure we are forgiven. Help us, Lord, to worship him in spirit and truth. And help us, Father, we pray, to bring others to that place of worshiping him in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name.